And so what we've been doing over the past uh, couple weeks is refocusing ourselves because one of the things that kind of naturally happens in just our schedules uh, is that sometimes during the June or July months when many of people vacation, uh, we kind of step away from some disciplines in our lives uh, or our focus might be taken away uh, from the Lord or uh, where it where it should be, and sometimes it's just because our schedules get moved around, or sometimes it's because we aren't intentionally seeking after the Lord. And what I want, what have I wanted to, for us to do over the past couple of weeks is to really to refocus ourselves. As you think about uh, many of the things that we have coming up, including like fifth quarter, which I forgot to announce, and I'll tell you about that right now. Um, if you haven't signed up to volunteer at fifth quarter, or you don't know when uh, the meeting is, um, you should go to fifth quarter end zone meeting, uh, whenever that is. But the, the, the thought behind fifth quarter is that we have over about 150 high school students that show up uh, to fifth quarter every other Friday night, basically every home game that they have here at the high school. And so we have an influx of people who typically aren't at our church uh, come to our church and the idea behind this is not just to have a safe place for kids to come and a fun place to keep kids out of trouble, uh, but in reality, it's an outreach for us. We are, are there to reach out to these kids, to get to know these kids, to invite them to be a part of what we've got going on here at the church. And fifth quarter is just one way that we do that. And a lot of our fall programs are just one way that we do that. And so I want to encourage you to be inviting people to, to those things and then also to our Sunday morning services and to be a part of this community. But here's the thing. When we invite people to be a part of this community, I want us to be healthy. And so we, we don't want to invite people to be a part of a community that's not focused or centered on God. Like there are a lot of social clubs. There are a lot of different community groups that are, are doing good things in the community but being the church, like, we want to be focused on the Lord. We want to be focused on the right things. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about things that steal our focus and then how we should refocus ourselves on really very simple spiritual disciplines in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so this morning, I'm going to continue that. And as I continue that, I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to get really personal. Uh, and um, some of this is going to feel a little uncomfortable for some of you, but the reality is, is that God is really personal. Uh, that, that we are in a world where a personal God shows up, and he's a part of your life, and he cares about all of you. Like, he, he cares about your, your spiritual being. He cares about your heart, like we talked about last week. And what I'm going to talk about today is the idea of God caring about your body um, and your, your whole body. You see, like, Christianity is not just a spiritual experience separated from what you do with your body. God has always been concerned with the material in a certain way. He always has. Um, as we look at Judeo-Christian values and so forth, like creation was good. Right? Adam and Eve were created, and God liked what he created. And we have, basically, we're the ones who have messed all of this up, but there are physical realities that God cares about and physical actions that God cares about. Actually, so much so 
that he marked his people with a physical mark. Did you realize this? What is it? Did anybody know how he marked his people originally? Circumcision, right? <laughs> All right, so he marked a group of us, right? Uh, half of us with a, a physical mark. It, it, uh, I heard a joke. I like it. I don't know if you will, but... Um, so a, a Polish Jewish scholar came over to study here in the United States. And as he came over, he spent about three years here, and then he went back home, and he was talking to his mother, and his mother asked him, she said, son, where is your beard? And he said, mother, men in America don't wear beards. And she said, okay, well, you still eat kosher, correct? I said, mom, in the United States, they don't have time to eat kosher. She looked at him, she said, well, the Sabbath you still keep, correct? I said, mom, business is business in the United States. I don't have time to keep the Sabbath. A little perturbed, she leans in. She goes, well, you tell me one last thing. You're still circumcised, right? <laughs> Jesus himself cared about the body. He healed people. He restored people. Jesus talked about the commitment that you give physically uh, to another person when you get married. Perhaps the most obvious thing, that, but we often forget about it, that shows that God cares about the physical is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And sometimes we forget because it just hasn't happened yet. We haven't seen it yet. But your, the promise that Jesus leaves for you right, is that one day that you will physically rise, that your body will be restored. And so the reason that we're talking about our bodies this morning is because they're deeply important to us, and they're deeply important to God. The theme verse that we've kind of been looking at as we've talked about some of these topics over the past several weeks is out of 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. And I just ask that you follow me in, in this this morning. It's in your notes as well if you want to look down there. But it, it begins like this. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The first week we started this, I, I told you this idea of what it means to be yoked with somebody because we don't, we don't really um, use this word a whole lot, yoked, but basically um, what he's talking about is hooking two plow animals together, an ox or horses or donkeys or whatever, and putting yokes around their necks. And what they do is they have to head towards the same direction and they have to be on the same page. And so if you either put a strong animal with a weak animal, or if you put an animal that is going to plow straight with an animal that uh, is uncooperative, uh, that uncooperative animal will eventually pull away the other one or in the other direction or so forth, or the weak one will slow up the strong one. And so this analogy is often used by pastors, and rightly so, uh, even in a marriage context when it talks about do not be unequally yoked. And so this is for those of you who are not yet married. Like if you're not yet married, just give me like two seconds here and then give me another like 20 minutes as I continue. But um, 
here's, here's the thing uh, that God is telling us through Paul here, that if you marry somebody who doesn't have the same values as you, who's somebody who's not following Jesus and on the same course as you, what you're going to have is you are going to have somebody who is pulling you in a different direction for the entirety of your life because you have joined them in marriage, a commitment forever. And I'm not saying that you can't keep following Jesus if you do that, but it's going to be incredibly difficult, and I have no idea why you would want to marry somebody if you are a believer, and Jesus is the first person in your life if they aren't a Christian. Because the most important relationship you have is your relationship with God, and so what you're, what you're basically doing is you are saying that you don't have to value what is most valuable to me before we join together for the rest of our lives. And the truth is, what will happen is you're going to try to continue to plow, continue to move forward, and that person is going to continue to pull. And it happens. It happens all the time. And, you know, we enter into relationships sometimes where we are unequally yoked. And I've had, I've been doing this for three years, kind of working with adults for three years. I've had a number of adults who have done this, and all of them talk about how difficult it is. Uh, they typically do. And the truth is, is that it's very likely that the person that you are yoked with, that they're not a believer, that they will actually pull you away. Uh, this is a secular study. A Pew Research study on religion in 2015 said that if you marry an unbeliever, that you are much more likely to leave the faith. And, and so if Jesus is first in your life, like just apply this principle to yourself before you make that decision. Do not be unequally yoked. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's just a word for Satan or worthlessness. And so what worthless activities are you engaging with, uh, with your body? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Big idea here is God lives in you, not in buildings. Right? Is that you, you are indwelled by the power of God, that Christ is in you. God, and God said, God said this, And I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so the promise here is that if you separate yourself and if you're walking with the Lord and if you're walking with believers, there's, there's a promise here and it's that God will walk with you. And so how is this promise carried out or how do we receive this? It says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. In other words, don't focus on what everybody else focuses on. Right? Don't have the same attitude towards what we're going to talk about this morning, your body, that everybody else has towards your body or their own body says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, let us refocus ourselves from every defilement of what, church? Of body, right? Every defilement of body, thanks, Charlie, um, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. The idea here, as we cleanse our bodies, 
is that we will take a time of intentional separation from what the world, world will teach, what other people will teach about our bodies, and we will focus on what God has to say about our bodies. And this is actually a part of our worship. This morning we read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to read 12, Romans 12, 1 uh, again because I, I want to show you this in Romans 12, 1, and I want us to think about this together. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And so what has happened is Paul has been talking about in Romans 1 through 11 what the death and resurrection of Christ basically means okay, and what that is and why that is important. And then he makes this appeal, like this is practical application for us by the time you get to Romans 12. By the mercies of God. And so he's taking our minds back to Romans 12, 1 through 11, where it is explained that God has been merciful to us with Christ on the cross by offering his body on the cross so that our bodies would not have to go to the cross. So Christ's body is broken, so our bodies aren't broken. Therefore, we receive the mercy and the grace of God. And so Paul is appealing to us by that mercy here to present now our bodies. And he wants us to present our bodies in this way, as a living sacrifice. So he said, Christ sacrificed his body, experienced death. He said, I don't want you to die physically here, but rather I want you to give me your body and I want you to live for me through your body as a living sacrifice as you walk on this earth. And this is your spiritual act of worship. If you want a spiritual if you want a spiritual relationship with God, you've got to have a physical relationship with him too. Right? If you want to worship him out of your whole being, you've got to worship, you've got to worship with your body here as an offering. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about this morning, as I have in the past couple of Sundays, three distractions that keep us from offering our bodies completely and totally to the Lord. And so the first one is this, if you're taking notes or just following along, um, it's addiction. It's addiction. And addiction is basically, I, I put it on the screen for you, but it's, it's basically anything that you keep doing that you can't stop. And so another way to put it here is, I'm going to read you the definition out of psychology today. Um, and so here it is. Addiction is a condition that results when a person ingests the substance, example, alcohol, cocaine, nicotine, or engages in an activity, uh, gambling, sex, shopping, that can be pleasurable, but the continued use or act of it, which becomes compulsive and interferes with ordinary life. Ordinary life responsibilities such as work, relationships, or health. Users may not be aware at their that their behavior is out of control and causing problems for themselves or others. We talk about this in a number of ways when we talk about freedom here in the church. And one of the verses that I, I like to explain what it means to be free in Christ here, Second Peter 2.19, and opposed to being enslaved. And I'm going to give you my translation as we talk about addiction. So here's my translation. The actual translation's in your notes and on the screens, though. But here's what addiction does. It promises freedom, but enslaves you to corruption. 
don't you realize whatever you're overcome by, you're enslaved to? The idea here and what Peter is, is wanting to get at is that these things that are promised as far as satisfaction, relief, freedom, that are promising those things for a moment are actually taking the place of God, but in reality they're enslaving you. Because the things that we're typically addicted to, like they do bring for a moment, they typically bring a momentary relief, they typically bring momentary satisfaction, and it usually disguises itself as freedom of choice, don't they? But in reality, you are actually enslaved to anything that you're addicted to. You really no longer have a choice because you're addicted to it. So you have to have that substance or whatever it is to make yourself satisfied, relieved, relieved, or whatever it may be. So it's not, a, it's not an act of freedom to be able to continue to do the thing that you are enslaved to. And we just know that this isn't healthy. This isn't healthy for our bodies. This isn't healthy for your life. In fact, the definition in psychology today tells you that it interrupts your normal patterns of life. It interrupts what you want most for yourself. It, want, it, it, it interrupts what God wants for you. It interrupts your healthy, it interrupts relationships, right? We all know addiction destroys relationships. Addiction can keep us from working as hard as we need to work. It often destroys our health. And the thing is, God cares about all of these areas of our life. So, uh, how do you know if you have an addiction? How do you know? When do you arrange your schedule around it? Do you arrange, do you arrange your schedule around it? Uh, two, um, do you do it in secret? Like, do you not want other people to know that you do it? Uh, are you isolating yourself, in other words, while you do it? Do other people say you have an addiction? Um, can you stop it? Uh, what in your life can't, can't you stop or aren't you willing to stop? Now, the good news is that if you are addicted, you, you don't have to be, right? These are things that God can help you overcome and God can forgive you of and walk with you in them. And there are varying degrees of things that you can be addicted to. I will, I will I, I acknowledge that. Uh, there are times where you're, you're going to need uh, a strong group of people like AA or NA or whatever it may be. There are times when you need medical help. Uh, for some of us, right, if it's simple addictions, Perhaps we just need a brother or sister in Christ to walk with us in those moments. And, and I want to encourage you, like, if you're struggling with a particular addiction in your life, um, and you may not even think it's severe, but you believe that, hey, maybe this is taking the place of God in my life, or this is causing me to ruin relationships, I encourage you to grab another brother and sister of Christ, another Christian, and say, hey, will you quit this with me? Like, even if you, even if, if you're the one being asked, like, even if you don't struggle with that particular addiction uh, or that thing doesn't enslave you, give it up for them and walk with them in their, in their pursuit to give this up. And Romans, and also you see this in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talking about this concept here, but it says, if another believer is in distress by what you eat, and this could be anything, we can just, by what you're addicted to, 
and you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Let us aim in harmony in the church and try to build each other up. In other words, if you know somebody who's just is struggling with an addiction at some point in their life and you believe that you can walk through them with that addiction, you're going to abstain from whatever it is to get through that moment with them. I'm going to ask that you do that. I'm going to ask that some people reach out and they walk away from some things that they're addicted to this morning. Second thing I I want us to look at as a distraction this morning is this fun word here, uh, debauchery. Now, this is not a word we use a whole lot, but it is a word found in the Bible. So I I figured I would teach it. Uh, Basically, it's excessive indulgence and and sensual pleasures. And so in other words, right, and we're kind of taught this right now, like if it feels good, do it. If it feels right in the moment, go ahead and do it because it's most likely right. And um, there's, if it feels right, it is right. Well, the truth is that's, that's just not true, right? If um, you engage in certain activities that just feel right in the moment, it doesn't necessarily make it right. So sex, drugs, or alcohol in certain situations, it's just not right, even if it feels good. In contrast, in contrast, we are encouraged as believers to evaluate how we feel because experiences and how we feel are not unimportant. Right? That's not what I'm saying here, is that how you feel and experiences are not unimportant. I'm just asking you that you evaluate how you feel and your experiences up next to Scripture and up next to what God wants for you in your life. And so as we look at this idea of debauchery, I want us to look at a passage out of Ephesians here. It's Ephesians 5.18. And basically what it says, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A few things going on here. A few things going on. Paul is encouraging the church not to get drunk on wine because it leads to debauchery. So in other words, this drunkenness leads to a clouding of the mind, right? Those of you who have ever experienced this, you you know this. And it can cause you to give in to your lesser inhibitions here and do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. And in contrast, Paul says, instead of being drunk with wine, in other words, instead of not thinking correctly, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you grew up in the church or what your experience has been like um, when we talk about the Spirit, but the Spirit, when, when the Spirit is at work in you, it's, it's not like you lose your mind, okay? You actually gain it, right? It, 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 it's a focus on what God wants for you. And all he's saying is when you're no longer able to focus, You're not going to be able to focus on the Word of God, which was inspired by the Spirit of God. And so you're probably going to make some decisions that may lead to debauchery, and you're not going to be able to evaluate your experience up next to what God wants for you and Scripture. And so I'm going to encourage you to be filled with the Spirit. Spirit brings self-control. Debauchery is actually lack of self-control, to 
to kind of give you some ways to think about that. The third thing I want to talk about here as we need to kind of check ourselves or refocus on or just see it as a distraction, and this covers, just, this covers a ton, um, is sexual immorality. Now, those of you who have been around my family or know me uh, know that the men in my family, we struggle with dyslexia. Um, and so, like, I know my dad is. My one brother's got a bad. My other brother's tested out. I always compensated. Um, but if you've ever edited anything that I've ever done or read anything that I've ever written, like, it's there. Um, so we see words and we type words and we have no idea what we actually said or saw. Um, and so when I was typing this out, uh, I actually wrote, um, I wrote sexual immortality. Uh, and it reminded me, it, it did remind me of an experience I had, and I think as Christians we should be able to laugh at ourselves. Um, it, it reminded me of an experience I had when I was, I was preaching at a camp in Alabama, and it was a youth camp, and I was covering this subject. And one of the things that we did at this camp is like we do here in this church. Uh, I would preach, and then they would break up into groups, and they would discuss what was being taught on that night. And one of the things I taught that particular night, uh, or brought up, was sexual immorality. And of course, uh, this is a hot topic for our young people. It's a hot topic for everybody, but especially our young people. And so we're down in Alabama, and this man from northern Alabama has a great Alabaman accent, southern accent, begins his time with his group. And he leads his group of teenagers with this question. What do you think about sexual immortality? And I decided, like, this night to go over and kind of listen to this group. And I'm like, did he just say that? And he goes, do you know what sexual immortality is? And I'm like, oh, no. And I, I, I've got a sense of humor, so I'm, like, trying not to laugh a little bit. Um, and I'm looking around, and he is, like, I mean, he's, he's serious. And this is a good counselor. And these group of kids, I think they're, I think they're a little terrified. And so they don't really know, um, like, what exactly is, is going on. And then he finally, you know, he asks, do you know what sexual immortality is? And I just got up and left, like, because I'm about to laugh. And they're all, they're all, they're all there, and, and he continues, um, but this is, uh, I bring some humor to it, but this is a really serious subject. And in fact, look at what Paul has to say. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So, I mean, he's really, he's really direct here. The word we typically see being used in the Bible when it's translated sexual immorality is this word pornea. And what we can tell from the context about everything that is written around this word pornea, basically pornea is any sexual activity outside of the biblical definition of marriage. Uh, so what we see is just that. Um, pornography is sexual immorality. Uh, homosexuality is sexual immorality. And so we have all of this kind of wrapped up in this one word when we are talking about sexual immorality here. And, and here's how I want to encourage you this morning as we think about this, especially as a, as a Christian. Um, we're, kind of looked, we're kind of looked at as old-fashioned. 
in, in this area. And maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're thinking, well, well, Josh, when I think about the Christian ethic on uh, sexuality and sexual immorality, um, I, I, I'm not sure that Christians have got this, got this right, you're, you're old-fashioned um, or whatever it may be. I want to propose to you this morning that uh, Christianity on this subject is not old-fashioned in relationship to the history of the world, but rather we are just different. We're just different. Uh, this is a Judeo-Christian understanding of what it means to be a sexual being, for sex to be limited and expressed wonderfully in marriage. Um, you see, the reason that Paul even has to write these words is because the culture that he is addressing, which is only 2,000 years ago, think about how old humanity is, doesn't believe the same things that he believes, doesn't teach the same things that he teaches. What he is introducing to them is a different and new ethic. This ethic then became perhaps, and I don't know if it ever really was, but for a period of time, maybe the dominant ethic of our understanding of what it means to be a sexual being. But only in certain parts of the world as well. Now, I, I, want, you to, I, I want to let you know that it is changing. Right? It is changing. The world's sexual ethic or the uh, acceptable way to talk about sexual immorality and so forth. But the church doesn't really change on this topic. We continue to look at this topic and just say, you know what? God offers a different, God offers a different way to be sexually active or to be human here. And, and I want to encourage you to do the same. I want to encourage you to look at Scripture and allow Scripture to determine uh, what it means uh, to express yourself sexually in, in the right way. I, I want you to, if somebody says, well, you're just old-fashioned. No, uh, this is actually new. Like, people have been struggling with this throughout the history of the world. Like, this was a, this was a new thought then. It's a radical thought now. Uh, and in a hundred years from now, uh, it, because this, if this isn't the dominant thought, will we be saying, well, to express yourself sexually however you want, will we be calling that old-fashioned? Uh, so that's, a, that's an argument I just want to, I want you to get away from that. And I want you to see how there's a separation here that Christians are willingly entering into not because they want to be better than anybody else or anything like that, but simply because they're Christian. Because they believe that Scripture determines how we should use our bodies, and we've offered our bodies to the Lord. He continues in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, here what you have in the Corinthian church is you actually have people who are, who are going to the temple to worship God uh, and offering themselves to a prostitute. That was part of their, their worship. Like, sex was part of the worship um, in this culture. Uh, one of the ways that we know that we worship sex is just when we put it before God. Right? Anything that we put before God is higher on the platform 
um, than, than God is as far as our worship is concerned. And so, like, if this is an area of your life or our lives that we're just not ready to submit to God, uh, and what we are is we're elevating sex above our pleasures, our senses, above God himself here. And I, I just want to encourage you not to do that. Because God pr- places great value on your body and who you give it to. Look at this. It says, For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is a quote out of Genesis. This is a quote out of the very beginning of the Bible. This is God's ideal for marriage as two people becoming one. I was talking with a lady this past week, and um, her husband passed away, and she, she talks about the pain that is there and how she feels like she's missing a piece of her. Right? Now, that is, an, that is an awful thing to experience. But sex is a way that God brings the love and the joy and the oneness that they got to experience while they were both walking the earth together. This is the, this is the beauty of sex and what God has meant it for as well. It says the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit to him. Your relationship, when you give yourself to your spouse and to your spouse only, is actually a reflection of the gospel. It's a reflection of God's commitment to you and him living in you and him being committed to you through thick and thin. And your sexual joining towards somebody is supposed to express that to somebody else, that I'm going to give myself to you and to you only, just as you give yourself to the Lord and to the Lord only. When we step away from that, we reduce sex to the physical and we reduce something that God has ordained to be important and beautiful in our life, and we reduce it to something that merely blink, brings us pleasure, we cheapen it. When I returned to that group uh, that was having the discussion that started out on sexual immortality, um, I eventually returned because I wanted to see how it was going. Uh, this group, that group began to uh, open up a little bit, and it's just a small group of guys. They're in a cabin together, and they begin to express their struggles with this and their life, right? And they begin repenting and uh, praying for one another and so forth. Last time I actually talked on the subject, it just kind of barely hit this subject. I had a guy come up to me after the service, and he said, Josh, I'd like to get lunch. And so we went out to lunch, and he expressed to me that um, he was addicted to pornography, and it was ruining and hurting his marriage. And I said, okay, thank you for coming to me and letting me know this. Here's how we can walk through this together and get by it and put it past us, and we can repent and turn another way. Uh, that's, the, that's, a, that's a great response to, to this. So I, I've given you three things that we struggle with right, that we struggle with and often can steal our focus away from God as we give our bodies over to things that just don't, they don't belong to. I want to give you uh, kind of three action steps here uh, that I haven't included already. And here's, here's why. Here's why. First Thessalonians 4 and 5. For this is the will of God. So here's a pretty direct statement here. This is the will of God. Want to know what God's will is in your life? Your sanctification. Your sanctification. In other words, enter, entering the process of becoming holy. That's God's will for your life. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how. In other words, I want you to learn how 
to control his own body in holiness. Holiness here um, can be defined as an act of separation from things that you are focused on or that you are doing that are keeping you from honoring God with your body here. Be separate like God in character and action and honor. And not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. And so right here, Paul is coming out and he's saying there are, are people who are going to do things that just aren't for you to do, that aren't for you to be about. Uh, and we're just going to have to know that. We're going to have to know that God has called us to something different and holiness and separation and so forth. And so here is one way to begin a walk in holiness, to be separated, to continue in the process of sanctification. Here's one step that God gives us, and it's simply to flee from it. Whatever it is, just flee from it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. But the idea is to, to get away, to get away, to run. Pretend you're Hussein Bolt, whatever you need to do, like, get away. And this could be a work relationship. Uh, maybe you have started a relationship with somebody. It may not even been intentional. It just, it just started to happen, and you've gotten a little flirtatious or so forth. Walk away from that. Like, if you have to, get a new job. It's not worth ruining your marriage. It's not worth ruining your witness. It's not worth ruining somebody else's marriage. It can be a neighbor. It may be time to move, right? Uh, you could be living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or thinking about it. Don't. Flee from those things. Get away from them. Set boundaries before it even happens. Before anything even happens, uh, one of the things about bringing new staff on is that we talk about certain things that we do in the office, and we do even have boundaries in our office. And if you didn't notice, uh, Mindy is a female. Uh, yeah. So uh, one of the things I talked with Mindy about this week, uh, and not because she brought it on or anything, but I just, I just told her, like, we stay above, we do our best to stay above reproach. And so I said, our, our policy here is that you don't have any one-on-one -on -one meetings with somebody of, at, of the opposite sex, especially with the door closed, without somebody knowing it and with ask, without asking them to check on you. I said, actually, a closed-door meeting is rare and is, is very rare. Like, don't do it very often unless there's something, like, people just absolutely can't know about. But then somebody's got to know about it, like, that you're in there and they have to check on you. And so never get in a car, right, with another guy that's not your husband, one-on-one -on -one from the church or even outside of the church, right? Set, set some boundaries. These are some things that we try to do even within the church. These are things that are going to be helpful for you as well as you try to s flee from sexual immorality or addiction or it or what, whatever that it is in your life. Check this out, continuing here. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But it's the, sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. He says, you are, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. In other words, when you began to serve God, you made a deal with God. God, I want to receive Jesus' broken body on the cross. I'm going to receive that because that's the grace that you offer towards me. It's his broken body. In return, I give you mine. This is what that means. God has your body at that point. God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to serve? 
even the question, what do you want me to abstain from? Those are, your body belongs to God. This is the deal that you made. You are not your own. Second thing here I want to encourage you to do is to guard your mind. Guard your mind. Jesus says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. In other words, what you see is who you will be. What you see is who you will be. See, the truth is that your thoughts and what you see leads to actions. This is actually what Jesus says, means by when he says that you, if you even lust after somebody, you've committed adultery. Did you know that Jesus said that? You ever wonder what he means by that? Like, oh my goodness. Uh, like, what am I going to do? I'm an adulterer all the time. Uh, no. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, but no, this is a real struggle, right? This idea that lust leads to adultery. And what Jesus is saying is that your thoughts actually lead to actions. And so if you can direct your mind into the, to the correct places and to the correct people, it will lead to the correct actions. If you can direct your heart towards Christ, towards the Word of God, all of these things, it'll lead you into the right actions. A lot of us think we're good people, and yet we've we foster, we foster these thoughts in our mind or we look at things that are actually corrupting our heart. And we say things like, well, I haven't committed adultery. And yet we're doing it in our heart by what we view. And the actually, what Jesus here is saying to those types of people, like if that's you, the only thing that is keeping you from committing adultery is opportunity. It's not actually that your heart's in the right place. And so this is why it's so important for us to guard our minds so that when the opportunity does come, because it can come and it may come, our minds are focused in the right place and we're able to flee from it. How do we focus our minds here? How do we know where to put our minds? Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things from the flesh. So in other words, if you want to mess up in this area of your life, cultivate it. Cultivate your mind in these areas. However, those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. If you want power to overcome this, you have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the Word of God. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. Surround yourself with Spirit-filled people. This is, this is the way you're going to overcome this, and this really leads into this last piece that I want to share with you um, because I want to be honest with you that like Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? It's, it's rather about a who. Uh, this is why we say Jesus is the subject. Um, we've all struggled with different areas of our life, um, whether it be with our body or our heart or our mind, and the thing that is going to redirect us and keep us on track and always get us back focused on Jesus is love. It's love for God himself, right? What keeps me, I, I believe wholeheartedly, what will keep me faithful to my wife, Emily, is my love for the Lord and my commitment to the Lord, him first. And this idea that holiness is reverence and the 
fear of God, wanting to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I know that anything that I do that is unfaithful to my wife breaks God's heart. God also calls me to love my wife. And so the more I allow God to cultivate love in my own life for my wife and reminding myself that my body belongs to her and her only, the easier it is for me to walk the way that God has called me to walk, and the easier it is for us to walk together in this straight line. It's going to be your love. It's going to be your love for God. It's going to be your love for your spouse. It's going to be your love for what he wants for you and what he has for you. And I I personally believe that this love typically starts with a commitment, right? Just like it does when you get married or whatever it may be, that you commit yourself to God or your spouse and your whole body. And so here's this last thought for you is here's what I'm going to ask you to do, right? If you haven't done this, everything else is just, you're going to be like fighting against the wind. It's going to be really difficult for you. Um, You're just going to try to be doing a bunch of do's and don'ts and it's just not going to work unless you present yourself to God. Present yourself to God. Here in Romans 6, 13, it says, do not present your members. In other words, we talked about as a church, right? We together want to present ourselves to God as we invite everybody to be a part of everything that we have going on here. Do not present yourselves to sin instead, or as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, anything outside of God's ideal for your body, you're walking in death, but God has brought you out of a place from death, and he wants to give you life. And so that's my prayer for you this morning, that you allow the word of God to work on you and bring you from death to life this morning as you present your bodies to the Lord. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes and leads us in one last song? Father, this morning, We give you thanks because we know that you have been, you have been a person like us. You came as God in the flesh. You came as a body. You were tempted like we were. You were tried like we were. And your body has been broken so that our bodies won't be broken. Father, this morning we pray that we trust our bodies with you, our whole selves with you. As we get ready to worship here, Father, I pray that we're reminded Um, that worship is not merely the words we sing. Uh, It's not merely how we feel. But rather, Father, it does involve action. It involves us presenting ourselves to you, our whole selves to you. Our minds, our hearts, our bodies. And so this morning, Father, I pray that if there's any area of our life that we have not offered to you, that we present it to you at this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.